This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Lands of Estates and Historic Properties podcast series. This episode carries on from the previous two episodes and is the third, focusing on the staging of outside events at Landed Estates and Historic Properties. My name is Naomi Natterton and I'm a partner in the real estate team at Charles Russell Sweetsleys and I specialise in advising Landed Estates on hosting events within their grounds. I'm pleased to say I'm today joined by Olivia Crane, an associate in our commercial team who specialises in data protection and Manoj Vagela, a partner in our litigation team who specialises in insurance litigation. Olivia, I'd like to turn to you first to talk a little bit about data protection and land estates in general, and then I think we can move on to an events context because I'm conscious that land estates come to this forum from a variety of backgrounds, some of whom don't have very sophisticated systems in place already and are just simply running their estate and others who are actually quite commercialised already. Can we just touch upon a bit about that and how that impacts on what they need to do for data protection if they want to start holding events? Absolutely. So data protection is something that pretty much every landed estate will come into contact with if they start running events. So it's, it's about how you hold and how you process personal data of the attendees of your events, of any employees you bring in, any subcontractors you require to help you run your event. And largely organisations or landed estates that are already running events currently probably are very well versed in data protection. They will have privacy policies in place to be transparent to their potential um, attendees about how their personal data will be captured, how that information will be processed, and if it will be shared with any third parties or even internally. Whereas I think, you know, land of the states that are trying to move into this area need to be aware of the potential steps they need to take to ensure that they are data protection compliant. Organisations need to get used to the idea that when they're capturing personal data from potential attendees, there are responsibilities in place. So as I mentioned, having privacy policies in place, understanding whether they have a lawful basis to capture certain information, and just generally complying with data protection principles under GDPR, which are around transparency and being able to be accountable for being compliant with data protection law. And largely, that's about demonstrating compliance. So businesses and organisations and land of estates need to start recording what sort of steps they are taking to protect that personal data. We've just been discussing throughout the series of podcasts on, on staging events, how land estates might look to contract the staging of the event to a third party organiser who in many cases might have more experience of staging events than the land estates team itself. How does that impact upon data protection and is it possible for the land estate to effectively contract down its data protection obligations to that event organiser in that event contract and what might those terms look like? From a data protection perspective, you can't contract out of your obligations. However, what you can do is specify and in the contract themselves, understand between the parties the data protection obligations. So there are roles that each party will play in relation to their control of the personal data that is collected. So, for example, if a land of the state is getting in a third party or an organiser to essentially run the event for them, it may be the case that that organising event or that organising company is actually the data controller of the individual's personal information and the land of the state themselves may not need access to that personal information. So you may be able to, in the contract, expressly state that where they're collecting information from these individuals, they are the data controller and that they have to put in place the requirements in those circumstances. Whereas the alternative is if um, the land of the state has that personal information of the attendees or visitors, it may be that that organising entity is the processor on their behalf, in which case there are contractual clauses that legally have to be in place in that contract. 
And how does that work with regard to holding that, that personal information for people in terms of marketing? I'm conscious that for many lands and states, the success or failure of many events is largely driven by the marketing and promotion of those events, not for the events that in turn become repeat events and create their own reputations. But at the outset, marketing has got to play quite a large role in that. And how does that data protection work in terms of that marketing? How can that information be used? Marketing consents is a really tricky one. So if you want to directly market to an individual, you have to have their consent to send that direct marketing. So when you're collecting that information, you have to capture that. And GDPR consent is a very high, high threshold. It has to be informed and it has to be specific to the direct marketing they will be receiving and the entity who will be sending it to them. So in these particular circumstances, if the event organizer, for example, is collecting that personal data of the attendees on behalf of the landed estate, they'd need to agree between themselves a valid capturing of consent for direct marketing from those individuals at the time when they are capturing that information. So it's something that they will have to deal with at the outset when that information comes in and the individual needs to be aware of how that information will be used and has to explicitly consent to the receiving of that direct marketing information. So it may be that the land of the state themselves wants more control over that capturing of the personal data at the outset to ensure they have valid consents to send out the direct marketing that's so central to the running of their event. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's one thing to consider, isn't it? Especially if a land of the state is using a couple of or, or more different events organisers for different types of events, it would be better for the land of the state itself to hold the names and details of those attendees so it could market those multiple events to that attendee. Because presumably, if it's one specific event organiser for one specific event who's got that information and they're not consent to provide that to the land of the state itself, then they wouldn't be able to use that information for other events if they weren't through that same organiser. You're absolutely right, because when you collect that information, the consent has to be based on the purpose for which it's going to be used. So it can't be general. So, for example, if that land of estate wants to use it across multiple different organisers and multiple different events, they will need to own that consent as a land of estate themselves so that they can push that multiple different marketing messages out to the individual. Whereas if it's the event organiser who is collecting that data for that specific event, it may be much more difficult to show that you've collected valid consent. And let's go one step further. I, I'm conscious that um, at the moment, I think if we if we all go to the pub, we have to sort of log in through an app and say, yes, we're in the pub today and this is my name and this is my phone number if you want to contact me. Do, do those types of sort of track and test and trace type logging in and checking in and checking out, we certainly have to do it in the office at the moment, apply to people attending these types of events? It definitely does. So in the current COVID environment that we're all operating in, and, and as you say, venues now sort of have an increased obligation to protect their attendees from COVID and also in the context of data protection to collect contact information in case an individual who has attended their event contracts COVID. So really briefly for you, the, the test and trace program relies around an individual if they test positive for COVID and then the government requests information about not just who they've come in contact with, but also which venues they've been to recently and when. So the venue may then get contacted and be required to provide contact information for all the individuals who were at that particular event on that particular evening when the individual who contracted COVID was there. So what you see here now is, is venues or, or landed estates who are not used to originally collecting very much personal data at all, now having to hold contact information for every individual who comes to an event, including employees or catering staff, anyone who is physically present on the evening. So it, it can become quite a burden given the security requirements and the data protection retention and transparency obligations the data protection puts on land for the states in these circumstances. 
is there a legal route that means that that landed estate host could, could then effectively get a tick box or consent to then use all of that information it's gathered for the test and trace process to use for marketing going forwards? Would there be a consent, a legal route to get those consents in play to enable them to have that information? Yes, absolutely. So that, that comes with an opt-in marketing consent that often you see when you're buying a ticket, for example, during the purchase process, or if you're registering for an event, you may see they put your name and your, your email address and potentially your mobile number. And then there'll be a sort of separate section that talks about capturing that direct marketing consent for use of that information. So what venues are tending to do now is capturing that information on the basis of telling the individual we're using it for track and trace, and then giving the individual the separate separate option, which is if you're also comfortable, we want to send you personalized direct marketing, please tick this box to say, yes, we can also use this information as well as the purpose of test and trace for direct marketing purposes. So it's certainly something you can look into. That's great. I'm going to turn now to Manoj on the theme of uh, the disaster striking. And, and sadly, if somebody got COVID at the event, what would happen? We'll, we'll continue that. And let's just say we all, you know, we're hopefully coming out of all of this situation now. But certainly, historically, and I suspect going forward, there will still be the, the word cancellation flowing around. And, and Manoj, you're an insurance expert. So you've been very busy during this period advising clients on, on whether or not they, they are protected with their insurance um, and perhaps vice versa advising insurance companies. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of the insurance that would be involved in these events for the lands of the states, the event organisers for both parties, without the COVID steer at the beginning, and then, and then we can come on to some of the more specific questions. Yes, thank you, Naomi. Um, well, I think um, as a prudent landowner, one of the things you have to do is is to protect against accidents, cancellations, and the like. You know, rightly or wrongly, we do live in a fairly litigious society, and COVID aside. I think landed estates who, who put on events would be well advised to make sure that their relevant insurances for whatever events they hold are in place. And that includes employers' liability in case our own staff get injured. Then there's the third party liability aspects, which are typically covered under public liability policies. And it can be a, a range of matters. For example, if you decide to you know, it's part and parcel of your event, hold sort of tractor racing or something. Well, you know, an insurer would shudder and think, my goodness me, how am I going to price that to, you know, little pony ride? So that sort of insurance has always taken place. But what we now have with COVID, obviously, is, is the risk of cancellation. And that's where the event cancellation policies can assist. So I've been dealing with a number of them over the last uh, four or five months. And on the whole, the insurance market in event cancellation has been very sensible, very supportive. Going forward, it's likely that there would be an express COVID exclusion, if not a general infectious disease exclusion. It's a question of managing expectations, managing risk. And on the whole, it's quite a positive environment, I think, for our clients in terms of getting business going. So throughout the series, we've been talking about how landed estates might contract for putting on these events and, and in particular getting an overarching events organiser to sign up to a contract to effectively take charge and, and do things for them. How does insurance play out in that circumstances? Because presumably the landed estates themselves carry insurance for their everyday normal operations, including for the staff that, that work in their grounds on a usual basis. And then you've suddenly got this enhanced level with this event organiser. Should the events organiser bring their own insurance? And, and how does the interplay between the two parties' insurance work? It really is a question of size of event and a question of negotiation and trust between the parties. So if you have, say, something 
major like an air show, then quite clearly the event insurances are going to play a significant part. And you'll find that not only the landed estates, uh, but also the organizer and any subcontractors will effectively be named insureds under the policy. So this will be a large bespoke insurance. If you've got slightly smaller things, then it really is up to the estate owner to make sure that it is protected. And part and parcel of that is, even though you could insist upon some of the people who, who sort of show at your events being insured, you'd want to make sure that if there was an issue and for some reason that party's insurance didn't respond, if we found ourselves in the frame, that, that our insurance would protect us. Because effectively what this insurance does is it protects against the event, whether it's an injury or whether it's a cancellation. But more importantly, it, it also protects you and indemnifies you for legal costs. What we're now finding is that in many ways, some sort of speculative claims can be brought, but they're expensive for people to defend. And that's where insurers can help our clients to make sure that the legal fees of our clients' trusted advisors get paid. So I think it really is a question of size of event and making sure that the right advice is obtained before the event, you know, really, really is held. And Olivia, is there anything from a kind of data protection type risk perspective that you, that you might be interested in interjecting with Manage at this point? Yeah, we've certainly seen in this space, especially venues in COVID-19 environments, wanting to implement certain protections against themselves to show that they are protecting against the virus. So potentially implementing temperature checks on the way in or requesting that all attendees disclose their, whether they've had fevers in recent times or certain health information. And under data protection law, that is actually special category data, which has a higher threshold of protection and obligations on the organization who's collecting that information. So businesses need to be really careful in that circumstance. And particularly, we've seen in terms of the liability points, if an individual is able to trace back that they've caught COVID at your venue, what does that mean for you? And have you been able to show that you have sufficient protections in place, such as these temperature checks, to have been mitigating the risk to individuals. So Manoj, turning back to you, do you see insurers insisting on these requirements as well? Are the insurers saying, yes, you have to take the temperature of everybody who's going to come and attend this event? Are the insurers insisting on compliance with the test and trace, for example? I think that it's very much up in the air. As to, um, certain insurers are coming in hard. Certain insurers are relying upon their traditional wordings and saying, well, actually, it's up to you, insured event holder, to uh, demonstrate that you've complied with all statutory obligations. It's much easier for an insurer to fall back upon the general law rather than to insert specific requirements. My own feeling is that that is generally what insurers will do. Another point that sort of follows on from our discussion on the data protection piece actually is the extent to which we, our clients, are now holding or processing data and bearing in mind all the sort of GDPR obligations and all the rest of it, it may be prudent that there's some sort of cyber extension to the public liability insurances. Because if there is some sort of inadvertent data breach or something like that, then bearing in mind the obligations that, that, that we're all under. And remember, I talked about legal expense. An extension like that, which wouldn't be particularly expensive, might be prudent uh, to purchase. Thank you both. Um, that's it's so fascinating and it's a whole world. 
the mind of staggers how you could get all of that into one contract for an event, but I'm sure we'll be asked to try and we'll continue to do so. I think that probably concludes our, our series of podcasts on staging outside events. The one thing that strikes me across all of the elements that we've discussed from how you use staff, how you talk about hospitality, how you ingratiate yourself with the data protection laws and manage all of those risks as between the land of the state and the event organiser, how you get your insurance as a land of the state and the insurance of the event organiser to line up. All of this comes back to what Simon Foster and myself were talking about in the first part of this, which is really that in all stages from the outset, during the intensity of the event itself, but also in the follow-up to that event, it's really important for both teams on the ground to just talk, talk, talk again, share information, keep sharing, keep checking. And it comes back to what we were saying about following up afterwards. And, and don't imagine that once the lights are out, you should all run off home because looking back and assessing how things went will enable you to look to the future and have events more successfully, but also to then create a series of events and, and play on what's been before and, and get it right and get it better every time. So thank you to everyone who's been involved in the series. But today, thank you particularly to Olivia Crane, Associate in the Commercial Data Protection Team at Charles Russell Species, Manos Vigela, a partner in our commercial litigation team specialising in insurance. And thank you from me, Naomi Nesselton, partner of real estate, Charles Russell Species. This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast.